Chapter 13 of Tales of Mean Streets. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tommy Hersant, Carlsbad, California. Tales of Mean Streets by Arthur Morrison. Chapter 13. The house had been genteel. When trade was prospering in the East End, and the ship-fitter or block-maker thought it no shame to live in the parish where his workshop lay, such a master had lived here. Now it was a tall, solid, well-bricked, ugly house, grimy and paintless in the joinery, cracked and patched in the windows, where the front door stood open all day long, and the womankind sat on the steps, talking of sickness and deaths, and the cost of things, and treacherous holes lurked in the carpet of road soil on the stairs and in the passage, for when eight families live in a house, nobody buys a doormat. And the street was one of those streets that are always muddy. It smelt, too, of many things, none of them pleasant. One was fried fish. But for all that it was not a slum. Three flights up, a gaunt woman with bare forearms stayed on her way to listen at a door which, opening, let out a warm, fetid waft from a close sick room. A bent and tottering old woman stood on the threshold, holding the door behind her. "'And is he no better now, Mrs. Curtis?' the gaunt woman asked with a nod at the opening. The old woman shook her head and pulled the door closer her jaw waggled loosely in her withered chaps nor won't be till he's gone then after a certain pause he's gone she said don't doctor give no oop lor bless me i don't want to ask no doctors mrs curtis replied with something not unlike a chuckle i've seen too many of em the boys are going fast. I can see that. And then she gave the handle another tug and whispered, He's been called, she nodded amain. Three sprit knocks on the bedhead last night, and I know what that means. The gaunt woman raised her brows and nodded. Ah, oh, well, she said. We all on us come to it some day, sooner or later, and it's often an happy release. The two looked into space beyond each other, the elder with a nod and a croak. Presently the other pursued. He's been a very good son, ain't he? Aye, aye, well enough son to me, responded the old woman, a little peevishly. And I'll have em put away decent, though there's only the union for me after. I can do that, thank God, she added, meditatively, as, chin on fist, she stared into the thickening dark over the stairs. When I lost my poor husband, said the gaunt woman, with a certain brightening, I gave him an handsome funeral. He was an odd feller, and I got twelve pound. I had a oak coffin and an open earse. There was a carriage for the family and one for his mates, two horses each, 
and feathers and mutes, and it went the furthest way round to the cemetery. Whatever happens, Miss Manders, says the undertaker, you'll feel as you've treated em proper. Nobody can't reproach you over that, and they couldn't. He was a good husband to me, and I buried him respectable. The gaunt woman exulted. The old, old story of Manders' funeral fell upon the other one's ears with a freshened interest, and she mumbled her gums ruminantly. "'Mobble Evan and some funeral, too,' she said. "'I can make it up with the insurance money and, and this and that. Only I don't know about mutes. It's an expense.' In the East End, when a woman has not had enough money to buy a thing much desired, she does not say so in plain words. She says the thing is an expense, or a great expense. It means the same thing, but it sounds better. Mrs. Curtis had reckoned her resources, and found that mutes would be an expense. At a cheap funeral, mutes cost half a sovereign, and their liquor, Mrs. Manders, said as much. "'Yes, yes, arf a sovereign,' the old woman assented. Within, the sick man feebly beat the floor with a stick. "'I'm a-coming,' she cried, shrilly. "'Yes, arf a sovereign, but it's a lot, and I don't see how I'm to do it, not at present.' She reached for the door-handle again, but stopped and added, by afterthought, "'Unless I don't have no plumes.' "'It'd be a pity not to have plumes,' I add. There were footsteps outside on the stairs, then a stumble and a testy word. Mrs. Curtis peered over into the gathering dark. "'Is it the doctor, sir?' she asked. It was the doctor's assistant, and Mrs. Manders tramped up to the next landing as the door of the sick room took him in. For five minutes the stairs were darker than ever. Then the assistant, a very young man, came out again, followed by the old woman with a candle. Mrs. Manders listened in the upper dark. "'He's a-sinking fast,' said the assistant. "'He must have a stimulant.' Dr. Mansell ordered port wine. Where is it? Mrs. Curtis mumbled dolorously. I can tell you he must have it. He averted with unprofessional emphasis. His qualification was only a month old. The man can't take solid food, and his strength must be kept up somehow. Another day may make all the difference. Is it because you can't afford it? "'It's a expense, such a expense, doctor,' the old woman pleaded. "'And what with arf pints of milk and—' She grew inarticulate and mumbled dismally. "'He must have it, Mrs. Curtis. If it's your last shilling, it's the only way. If you mean you absolutely haven't the money—' And he paused a little awkwardly. He was not a wealthy young man. Wealthy young men do not devil for East End doctors. But he was conscious of a certain haul of sixpences at Knapp the night before, 
and, being inexperienced, he did not foresee the career of persecution, whereon he was entering at his own expense and of his own motion. He produced five shillings. "'If you absolutely haven't the money, why, take this and get a bottle. Good, not at a public house, but mind, at once.' He should have had it before. It would have interested him, as a matter of coincidence, to know that his principal had been guilty of the self-same indiscretion. Even the amount was identical on that landing the day before. But, as Mrs. Curtis said nothing of this, he floundered down the stair and out into the wetter mud, pondering whether or not the beloved son of a congregational minister might take full credit for a deed of charity on the proceeds of sixpenny nap. But Mrs. Curtis puffed her wrinkles and shook her head sagaciously as she carried in her candle. From the room came a clink as of money falling into a teapot and Mrs. Manders went about her business. The door was shut, and the stair a pit of blackness. Twice a lodger passed down and up and down, and still it did not open. Men and women walked on the lower flights, and out at the door, and in again. From the street a shout or a snatch of laughter floated up the pit. On the pavement footsteps rang crisper and fewer, and from the bottom passage there were sounds of stagger and sprawl. A demented old clock buzzed divers' hours at random, and was rebuked every twenty minutes by the regular tread of a policeman on his beat. Finally, somebody shut the street door with a great bang, and the street was muffled. A key turned inside the door on the landing, but that was all. A feeble light shone for some hours along the crack below, and then went out. The crazy old clock went buzzing on, but nothing left that room all night, nothing that opened the door. When next the key turned, it was to Mrs. Mander's knock, in the full morning, and soon the two women came out on the landing together. Mrs. Curtis, with a shapeless clump of bonnet. "'I is a lovely corpse,' said Mrs. Manders, "'like wax. So was my husband.' "'I must be stirring,' croaked the old woman, "'and go about the insurance and the measuring and that. There's lots to do.' "'And there is. Oh, are you going to have Wilkins?' I had Wilkins, better than Kedge, I think. Kedge's mute dress is rusty, and their trousers is frayed, if you was thinking of avin' mutes. Yes, yes, with a palsied nodding. I'm a-goin' to have mutes. I can do it respectable, thank God. Uh, and the plumes? Ah, yes, and the plumes, too. They ain't such a great expense after all. End of chapter 13